This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We have Dave Green on the program with us today. How you doing, Dave? Always a delight to be with you, Bob. Well, it is. And in fact, in terms of being delighted, I think one of our uh, guests and supporters of the uh, program, Bruce Deerstein, the historian from Albany, is probably a, a happy lad. His uh, book, The Spirit of New York, where he takes a look at uh, some important events in New York state history, got a nice write-up in the New York Daily News. And in fact, you sent it to me, Dave. Did did, did see the link, did not get all the information from it, but uh, he, he he wrote that book a couple of years ago? Yes, he, yes, he did. Uh, I mean, the one that stands out, I mean, he writes about the creation of the New York State Constitution, for example, but the one that I really got interested in was the history of the thruway. Is it something I... So we're all interested in that one, actually. Yeah. I, I remember the opening of the thruway. Yeah. Oh. I was there, October of 1955. Well, yes, and apparently there were several openings that they, they kind of rolled it out because it was finished in some places quicker than others. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they, they Governor I think Governor Dewey was in office then and made a big deal about it. It was Gover- Governor Dewey was in office in Well, they named it for him and I think it was basically his idea. I think he was in office, but you you'd have to ask Bruce Deerstein. Okay. All right. If I see him I, cert- I certainly <laughs> yeah. will and and we've often wondered over the years why they make the entire length of the throughway out of either concrete or cement. Yeah, I know. Well, they did. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, as you used to do when you were a kid. But they've covered a lot with asphalt, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, most of it's been replaced. Yeah, thusly, we continue with the tolls. We do. And another story in the news that has to do with history, and also my hometown of Amsterdam, New York, was the passing of computer wizard Ray Tomlinson. Lived out in the Boston area, I believe. Worked for a number of the big computer companies, and... His major development, or the thing that got the obit in the New York Times, uh, which my daughter-in-law Tamar uh, sent to me, because she, like so many people, Dave, maybe including yourself, she reads the Times religiously and finds everything in the Times. I look at the headlines religiously. Anyway, what Ray Tomlinson did was invent email. And he did that by coming up with a way to send a message from one computer to another and I believe that was back in the 1970s. Uh, and he also was the one that decided to use the at symbol to show the the distinction or to link the person sending the message and the place where the person was at. Uh, and uh, Ray Tomlinson. Was so it a, could have been it could have been a star or a dash, but he went for the at sign. Yeah, and it was sort of a computer thing as to why he chose that because. The at symbol wasn't being used in the computer language that he was working with so that it wouldn't confuse the computer. You know what I mean? I understand. Yeah. So he had, and he was a witty guy. He had some funny things to say. Like, you know how when uh, Alexander Graham Bell invented uh, the telephone, apparently with other people did as well, you know, he said, Watson, come here, I need you. But as uh, Ray Tomlinson said, the first messages he sent were completely forgettable, he said, and I, in fact, have forgotten them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so but, but the time frame, mid, mid-70s. Yeah, I think that's when, or maybe even early 70s that he, he did that. But, and he was a computer um, guru. He, he was, a couple of years ago, uh, received some uh, big award from Google or somebody like that. But he was born in Amsterdam. However, he grew up in Vale Mills, which is in the Broad Alban area, you know, near Amsterdam. And he went to Broad Alban High School. So 
The superintendent of schools at Broad Auburn High School, can you believe this, is Steve Tomlinson. So I've known him a bit over the years, interviewed him, and I called him up. I said, are you related to Ray? He said, no. See, I can't believe it. I grew up here. He grew up here, but we're we're just not related at all. But uh, Steve Tomlinson, the school superintendent, pointed out a very interesting thing about Broad Alvin Perth Central School. Their website is BPCS, and on their website, they have posted all their yearbooks back through 1934. Ouch. Nice. So he had done it earlier, but I went to the, the yearbook to find, you know, what was Ray Tomlinson? Well, first off, he was valedictorian. Uh, he uh, had a quote. Unfortunately, I didn't write it down. You know, they, they often put a quote or something under you, and he said, I think it said, the world is his classroom, and he's an honors student. And uh, he also was sort of, not sort of, he was well-rounded, and, you know, he transcended geekiness, Dave. He played in the band. He played uh, basketball, I don't think intercollegiately, but he did play uh, on the high school soccer team and the golf team. He was in the National Honor Society, wrote for the newspaper, the yearbook, and he uh, uh, was a hall monitor in addition to all of his (laughs) other activities. And Ray Tomlinson, uh, you know, they they always have uh, the class will. And so Ray Tomlinson said he left his ability to do a six-step geometry program in 14 steps to anyone who has the time and ability to do it. I... I've come up with an idea to pay a tra- – I mean, let's face it, the man is an innova- innovator. W- what we need to do, and I understand in New York State, you need to pay, you know, the, the blue plaques that are put outside homes. Yes, You yes. know, to mark a historical site, I guess. Yep, yep. All you need is a New York State plaque with the at sign on it. <laughs> That's true. And everybody will ask, what's that all about? Yeah, what is that? It's, Ray, it's, yeah. it's for Ray Tomlinson. So I'm working on a, a Daily Gazette story about Ray Tomlinson, and others have done it. They've talked to some of his uh, – his relatives and so forth, but he he passed away recently. And another history topic I'd like to uh, bring up with you, Dave, has to do uh, with an interview we did a few weeks ago with Phil Bowler, Philip Malcolm Bowler, a descendant of the Bowler family, which used to operate a brewery in uh, Amsterdam. And um, the brewery is you know, long gone. But you can still see the sign, a fate, one of those, they call them ghost signs. It's a faded bowlers on the side of the building on Route 5 as you drive through Amsterdam. Can that be seen from the throughway? No, probably not. All right. I, I don't believe so. But it can be seen from Route 5 or, or West Main Street. But you really got to kind of look because the sign is, you know, quite faded, but it's still there. But when we did the interview with, with Phil, I was working on the story of Bowler's Brewery, and the story is more, shall I say, complete now. So if, if you could bear, bear with me, Dave, I just wanted to uh, bring up some of the points uh, about the history of Bowler's Brewery uh, that uh, was in my uh, Focus on History column. The man who founded the brewery was Harry Fitch Bowler. He was born in England, a place called Ipswich, 1854, and at age four, relocated with his family to Troy, New York, where Harry's father, Henry, operated a brewery. So, see, Harry Bowler comes from, uh, at least uh, his father also was in that same business. And young Harry grew up in Troy. Then he apprenticed or something like that to a brewer in Virginia. 
then relocated to New Haven, Connecticut. I sort of even lose the bouncing ball here myself. Can't imagine why the next thing happened. He's in New Haven, Connecticut, but he married a woman who was originally from Palmyra, New York. She must have been in Connecticut for some reason. And her name, Julia Imogene Millard. And Harry Bowler then moved back to Troy, and he started, you know, continued to work in breweries. He worked in Troy, Hudson, and Albany. And then in 1889, he started his own brewery in Amsterdam. The facility, you, you need the skill of the brewer, and this is what Phil Bowler, the modern descendant, said. You need the skill of the, of the man who, or person who's going to mix the ingredients to make beer, but you also need good water. And the water they used for Bowler's Brewery was from something called the Mohegan Spring, which we think still exists, but I really haven't uh, found out you know, where, where exactly it is, except that uh, it's on the firm's property or the former uh, Bowler Brewery property in the west end of Amsterdam on a street called Carmichael Street. So Bowler started his brewery in the west end of Amsterdam using water from the Mohegan Spring. You have spring water a day. In fact, maybe I'll take a sip of it right now. Yeah, a little Saratoga water, as a matter of fact, Bob. It's, uh, you know, it's fresh from the well, as I say. And, you know, you, the, the, the way you're describing how he moved around or the people at the time in the, in the mid-1800s or late 1800s, for some reason I think of it as people not moving around that much because, of obviously, the transportation means at the time. Well, you could, I mean, that you could move around by train quite a bit. I mean, once you got there, maybe you had a walk or... You you stayed for a while. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you stayed for a while. Um, So Harry Bowler starts the brewery in Amsterdam. Parenthetically, two of his brothers for many years operated a brewery in Worcester, Massachusetts. So Harry expanded his Amsterdam plant in 1894. Unfortunately, it was made out of wood at that time. And after the big expansion, the facility was destroyed by fire in 1895, which did $100,000 in damage. Bowler, though, was not be deterred. He then built, you know, it's kind of almost like the three little pigs here. He built a brick structure, you know, one that wouldn't burn as easily. He built a five-story brick structure that opened in 1896, and that main brewery building is what's uh, still there in uh, Amsterdam. And I'm having a little memory lapse. I, I forget, it's still used you know, for warehousing and, and things of that kind out in the west end of Amsterdam. The Bowlers, this is now Harry and his, his wife Julia, had two sons, one named Arthur, another also named Harry, and a daughter uh, whose name is Sarah Bowler Burnham. She married a gentleman named uh, Burnham. Uh, Bowler's great-grandson, as I mentioned at the start of this little chit-chat, his great-grandson is the world traveler Philip Malcolm Bowler of Burlington, Vermont, who we had on the program not too long ago. And uh, Philip Malcolm Bowler said he never got the family's beer-making formula and he never got any of their money. By the time uh, Philip Malcolm came along, Dave, there was you know, no money to share. I see. So the stories over the years really haven't changed too much. <laughs> no. no. But Phil Bowler did say he really wishes he had the formula, this is what he told us in the podcast, for the long-lasting paint uh, which his ancestors used to write Bowler's Brewery on the front of their building on what is now Route 5 West Main Street, a faded sign still visible today. It was a very successful 
a brand a brand of beer or you know brands brands of beer. They turned out all different kinds. The New York Central Railroad built a siding adjacent to Boulders in 1905, and I got a kick out of this. In 1912, I found a Boulders newspaper ad. There were a lot of newspaper ads for Boulders, but this one from the recorder, quote, For the sake of the health of everyone in your family, take my advice and tell your mother to always have in the house a supply of Amsterdam brew, bottled lager <laughs> beer, and still ale. <laughs> And make sure you finish everything on your plate. Well, I remember some years after that, <laughs> that my, both of my grandparents on my father's side were were topers. I think that was one of the English what, words. What is that? They, I mean, they like to drink. I, oh. my, my grandfather, primarily in a saloon, of course, the, the saloons didn't admit women. And my father does remember being sent up Eagle Street in Amsterdam to O'Shaughnessy's saloon, going to the back door and knocking on the door. And he's carrying the fam- his mother's growler. You know, the bucket that they can put beer in. And and, and you forced us into looking up the, the, the reasoning behind the use of that word. The growler? The growler. Oh, did we? I, I didn't look it well, up. Well, apparently it is called a growler, if I have it correct, because when they would fill the pail with the beer, it was the sound people said it made as they sloshed their way home with it. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it, it sounded like it was growling at them. <laughs> it could be. You know, something. Yeah, maybe my father. You know, my father who, you know, he typically for, <laughs> for, for, for certainly not true of me, my father was didn't drink much. You know, he was pretty much a teetotaler much of his life. He, well, knowing the Cudmores, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, uh, but anyway, he was getting the brew for his mother. And and not to sidetrack the conversation at all, but I guess I am going to. You you bring up somebody that you say where they got the water to make the beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, at the time, it, everything seems to me anyway so prehistoric, just a hundred years ago. How they ever got anything done without the internet, I don't know. <laughs> but you know where companies got their materials to. Do, for example, you said they built the the second brewery out of brick. Mm-hmm, right. Where did that come from? Well, maybe they made it nearby, or I don't know. But probably, well, I mean, I, Home Depot, it wasn't <laughs> on the book. It probably came by train, you know, that New York Central Railroad again, you know. That, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever they made it, they brought the bricks in, or maybe they made bricks in Amsterdam in those days, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the Bowler Brewery... Somebody drop us an email on this. That would be good. BobCutmore at Yahoo.com. Um... A tribute to Ray Tomlinson once again. Okay, Harry Fitch Bowlers just keeps rolling along in the early 1900s. Um, unfortunately, in 1913, the brewery is quite successful, but in 1913, his wife Julia dies. She's at age 60. Harry then married a woman from Amsterdam, Anna Wood, in 1915. Something I can relate to, Dave. Uh, Harry Bowler suffered from heart disease, and he traveled to Newark, New Jersey, to consult with a heart specialist. Harry Bowler, 63, died in his hotel room in Newark, February 9, 1917, before he had a chance to see the doctor. He'd come all that way to see the doctor and apparently had a heart attack and died before he could see him. And what was the so-called technology at the time to help you with such problems, I wonder? I think you died. Yeah, that's... Exactly. You know, in fact, I, I think I mentioned... I don't know if I mentioned it to you. I know I've talked to... Writing these history stories about famous people from the Mohawk Valley from, you know, the going up until maybe like the 1950s. 
it seems like a lot of the really good ones, you know, I mean, Harry Bowler was 63, but uh, there was a gentleman, a great sportsman, great athlete, named Alex Isabel from Amsterdam, you know, and he was in his 50s, speaking at the Elks Club, collapsed and died. You know, and that's, it, it seems it, hap- it happened quite a lot. Yeah, there, would, there weren't the answers. We still don't have the answers. No, we don't, but uh, we do have uh, defibrillators and things like that to bring you back. Apparently, um, Harry Bowler's body was brought back to Amsterdam, and a passenger train made a special stop, you know, to unload the casket. Uh, the wake was held at the Bowler's home, which was on Grove Street in Amsterdam. And he was buried, though, uh, next to his first wife in her hometown of Palmyra. When he died, Harry Bowler was eulogized as a charitable, community-minded family man, a Democrat although he never ran for public office. Pictures survive showing him hosting gatherings for employees and customers with plenty of beer in sight. After Harry Bowler died in um, 1917, beer making continued you know, by his uh, children and, his, uh, and the widows survived and they continued to run the brewery. But you know what comes along, Dave, in the year 1920 that affects bowlers and other breweries around the country? That is prohibition. Oh, I thought you were going to die. I was going to go for the, uh, the, the the ladies got the right to vote. Well, they did that, too. But uh, So they got, they got the right to vote, but then nobody could drink. So yeah. Well, anyway. But so right in 1920, the beer lovers in Amsterdam, and probably elsewhere, but I researched it for Amsterdam, uh, beer lovers in Amsterdam had a temporary reprieve from prohibition in 1920. The federal government decided to let bowlers sell beer to those who had a medical prescription for it. Can you say medical marijuana? I mean, it's kind of similar. I I get it. Uh, now you've got uh, more curiosity involved here. So they passed the Prohibition Act. Yes, and then they granted exemptions to some breweries, apparently, at, to continue brewing real beer. Uh, but, which, but my question is, what became of all the breweries across the nation once that act was passed? Well, well, They've got a business? Well, yeah, well, in, to a large extent, yes and no. I mean, I'll, can, I'll tell you the story of oh, what happened to this brewery, uh, okay. and I don't know the others, but uh, still on the story of the medicinal beer, the medicinal beer also had nearly twice the alcohol content of the beer that had been sold before the Prohibition. And once again, I turned to the pages of the Amsterdam Recorder for some clever writing in their story about this. They wrote, quote, Tell the glad tidings to suffering men. The hophounds are howling in happy hilarity. All beer is medicinal, Bob. <laughs> it is. But apparently that was just short term. And as the roaring 20s rolled on, Bowlers switched, and this is what bowlers did, they switched to making non-alcoholic beverages. And you can also make something called near beer, which had just a little, little bit of uh, alcohol. Near beer. But uh, as I wrote in my column, bowlers, uh, you know, made the non-alcoholic beverages at least much of the time. Uh, uh, The family sold out. Buildings, land, and equipment of the brewery were sold to the John P. Dugan Company, 1923. The operation was renamed the Amsterdam Cereal Beverage Company, as in cornflakes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and 
in terms of them making non-alcoholic products, I did find at least one, or I found one clipping, and there may be others. In 1924, the local paper had a story about federal agents staking out the Bowler's plant. They continued to call it Bowler's Brewery, even though the family didn't own it. And they and the feds impounded a truck leaving the property, which appeared to contain real beer. Uh-oh. In 1927, what had been Boulders was purchased by a Waterbury, Connecticut brewer named George Largay. Largay and Leo Omella of Fonda were ready when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was elected and when Congress repealed Prohibition, or however that worked, in 1933, and they resumed beer production in Amsterdam in 1933. The firm was then known not as Bowlers, but as Amsterdam Brewing Company. Products produced included Amsterdam Porter and Amsterdam Stout, but beer production ended and the firm, as near as I can tell, went bankrupt in the early 1940s, and that kind of ended uh, beer production in the city of uh, Amsterdam. There's more information on Harry Bowler in uh, Michael Cinquanti's uh, great book, A Year's Worth of Amsterdam Birthdays. Of course, right now, there's this great interest in craft brewing, right? I was just reading uh, Marlene Kennedy, who was always one of the my favorite columnists to bring up when you and I were on the radio in Amsterdam, Apparently, uh, Schenectady County Community College is going to be offering a degree in brewing beer. Well, so. Mr. Mr. Cuomo seems to be well behind this push. Yeah, he, he is. He's really uh, he's really big on the. Yeah, they have their summit every what every summer. Yep, they do the the beer summit. Right, and they've changed the rules as to who can sell what hard liquor and where it can be served and. The increase in breweries and craft breweries and microbreweries across the state has increased, I guess, uh, by a few hundred at the least. Indeed. Well, as long as well, you said the governor's putting a big push on, let me just put a little push in the direction of our podcast and our fund campaign on GoFundMe. I finally figured out how to add all the figures together so you can find by going to my GoFundMe site that we've raised $995 in both uh, online and in-the-mail donations. Uh, If you uh, go online, uh, go to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians2016. And if you'd like to send a small donation uh, to help out and and not using the internet, you can make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, H-O-R-S-T-M-A-N, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And if you are wondering, I believe this week, episode 102 will air. Yes, we've had uh, yes, we're over a hundred, over a hundred episodes of the um, historians. You'd, th- you'd think we would, uh, or you would, run out of things to talk about. Well, you know that's always a concern, but with, something always uh, seems to come up. You know what I'm that's saying? That's true. Something's always uh, coming up there. It only it only took uh, 2,016 years to put it all together. That's true, and um, we're we're still working on some of them. Well, let me see if I can sneak in uh, some of another uh, story. Maybe I'll. A shorten uh, some of the details, but a very uh, a column that seemed to get a lot of attention that I ran uh, in the Daily Gazette you know, a few weeks ago, uh, or depending on when you're listening to this, 
about the appalling accident on the Mountain Lake Electric Railroad. This, Dave, a trolley line, and both you and I kind of like trolleys. True. A steep grade, human error, and a wet night contributed to what one newspaper headline described as an appalling accident on the Mountain Lake Electric Railroad near Gloversville, July 4, 1902. Fourteen people died. Sixty were injured. Most victims were Gloversville folks who had traveled up what's called Bleecker Mountain to Mountain Lake for a day of fun capped by fireworks. The lake at the time had a resort hotel. As the crowd dispersed about 10 p.m., an open trolley car, number one, with 70 on board, began the descent to Gloversville. A heavier enclosed car, number five, with 55 passengers on board, followed shortly thereafter. Basically what happened was the the first car was proceeding okay. You know, it was a, maybe a, by this point a rainy night. But the car behind it, the big car, apparently maybe had gone too fast. And lo and behold, the other car, is they see it ahead of them. And the motorman, whose name was William Dodge, tried to stop. But the brakes failed to slow the heavy car. The railroad apparently had not yet installed a more modern braking system. Uh the motorman tried to stop the car with, the, you know, like, the emergency brakes, you know, pulling uh, brakes that hit the wheels, but the, the cars just kept going. By then, the two cars were sort of locked together, and they're starting to go faster. And then, ultimately, Dodge put the trolley in reverse, which had the effect of blowing the system. You know, the power went out, the lights went out. And then, uh, on a hairpin turn, the first uh, open trolley, uh, left the tracks and fell over. People fell out of the open sides, and the trolley fell on them. The more, you know, the enclosed car just left the tracks as the rails split, and there they were uh, in the in the middle of the night. It took two hours to restore power. Uh, victims were taken uh, to the old uh, the old Nathan Latour Hospital. The hospital still exists, but in a new building. By trolley car, once they got the power back, trolley car came up the tracks to it uh, and took the uh, wounded back to the uh, hospital. This electric railroad had opened in 1901, and this accident took place in uh, 1902 on 4th of July. After the accident, lawsuits bankrupted the company, and it was reorganized. Uh, Later, it was bought by... Uh, another railroad, which existed in the area, the Fonda, Johnstown, and Gloversville. Uh, the hotel, which was at the lake, was destroyed by fire in 1908, and the trolley line itself closed in 1918. I talked to uh, my friend uh, Jerry Snyder, an Amsterdam historian and a railroad history buff. He said a railroad history group went up the old trolley line route a few years ago, the one the Mountain Lake ran. And uh, Jerry said that some members of the group found brackets used to hold overhead wire support still there after all these years. And I concluded the column by saying this, we may have to wait for the definitive account of the accident until railroad historian Paul Larner puts out his next book on the Fonda, Johnstown, and Gloversville Railroad. I I talked to Paul, and he emailed me this quote, quote, I have completed a reasonably thorough history of the Mountain Lake trolley line, but in all of it, 
The central focus of that history comes down to one event, the wreck of July 4, 1902. Everything else is prologue and epilogue with a lot of political and financial intrigue added to the mix. And that's our trolley line disaster story, Dave. Uh, any part of that uh, line still operable? No. Uh, the, uh, the tracks are gone and everything. Uh, and okay. same with Fonda Johnstown and Gloversville. They, they've turned their rail port, you know, the steam and diesel rail portion, into a uh, rail trail in uh, Fulton County. Uh, but uh, no, the trolleys, uh, the trolley lines in around, the Fonda Johnstown and Gloversville even ended, I think, in the late 1930s around here. They switched to buses. So I really don't know. I know we're almost out of time here. We are. Yeah, we're out of time. We're out of time. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Dave Green has been along for the ride here on the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.